If you like sports talk with absolutely no sports talk, then welcome back to the Just Not Sports podcast. This is the show where I talk to the people who play and cover sports about anything they like that's just not sports. On today's show, we have multiple-time Olympic swimming gold medalist Natalie Coughlin. Yes, iconic figure in the sports world and iconic figure in the cooking world, in the wine world, in the photography world. Yes, we get into everything she's doing outside of the pool. Stick around for that. I am your host, Brad Burke, sports marketer in Chicago, and welcome back. Welcome back. Uh, Episode four of the new season. We are happy to have you, and thank you for all of the uh, people hitting me up on Twitter. Thank you for everyone giving me positive feedback on the shows thus far this season. Rick Pitino, Eddie George, Sean Fennessy from The Ringer. Lots of good horror movie debates going on in my uh, in my DMs uh, from our talk last week with Sean Fennessy. So uh, you know me. Hey, look, I love Halloween. I love scary movies. I popped on Freddy vs. Jason last night. I made about 45 minutes in, then, then, uh, then it fell asleep with my computer on my lap. But, you know. Okay, enough about me. Let's talk about Natalie. Multiple-time Olympic champion swimmer. She's one of those swimmers that can just drape medal after medal after medal that she's won at the Olympics around her neck. And just, it, you know, looks like she's wearing a suit of armor. Okay? So she's a champion athlete in the pool. American icon representing our country uh, through sports. But... She is so much more than that. Number one, she's a mom. That's right. We taped this like, I don't know, day, like three days before she was due to give birth. And I'm so pleased to report from what I see on uh, social media. It looks like um, a new baby has arrived. Congratulations, Natalie. I hope you got all the sleep. I hope you charged those batteries with as much sleep as you could get before the baby arrived. And I wish nothing but the best because, man... Those first few weeks with a baby. As, as, uh, as Adam, my former boss, once told me years ago, when you have a baby, they're just, they're just like a little blob you're trying so desperately to keep alive. And then one day they just show you that glimmer of personality and it just makes all the not sleeping and the stressing and the worrying worth it. And I'm here to report that is absolutely true. <laughs> Natalie, we talked you know, before baby had arrived about all the things she's got going on. Number one, cooking. She's got a cookbook project coming out. It's all about blending her love of food with uh, you know, healthy lifestyle choices. We talk about the process of, of getting that kind of a project off the ground, um, choosing the recipes, you know, how did, why did she get into it at all, and, and food photography, man. How hard is food photography? I know people that are like food stylists, and man, you, know, you try going into the kitchen and making a souffle and then taking photos of it and, and go down to Barnes and & Noble and, and, and compare yours to what the, the, uh, the pro cookbooks have, man. It is a tough racket. So we talk about cooking. We talk about food. But if you're going to talk about food, you got to pair that with some wine, man. Natalie has gotten into the wine industry. She runs a small vineyard, so we break it down. She's shoveling dirt. She's moving through the through the crop. She's putting stuff on conveyor belts, filling up bottles. So good for her. We break down uh, why she got into that, what her ambitions are for it. And then we talk photography, shark diving photography. You might have heard that in our, our teaser from last week. So very expansive discussion. I think you're really going to like it. Natalie has a, a zest, a zeal for life uh, that I think is infectious, and she was a lot of fun to talk to. So let's hear from Natalie, and stick around after. I'll give you my distraction for this week. 
and tease next week's show. Where I do want to start briefly, as a, as a father of two young girls, I, I know you're, you're having what I believe is your first child in like a matter of days, right? Yes, I'm due next Friday. So, and this comes from a place of love, because my wife would say, you know, people would say to her, oh, being pregnant is such a miracle. And she's like, I want this baby out of me. I'm ready to move <laughs> forward. Let's go. You know, it's really funny. Um, before I was actually pregnant, I, I assumed I would be one of those women that hates being pregnant just because I've been such an athlete and so active and, you know, have maintained the same weight for 20 years. Um, and shockingly, um, I really enjoyed being pregnant. Um, <laughs> I, I like, I, I really thought I would hate it. And fortunately I had, um, I've had a really easy pregnancy. So I think that Great. that has been part of it. Um, but all that being said, the last two or three weeks, I see someone having a beer. I see ha someone having a glass of, <laughs> of wine and I would, I would kill for that. <laughs> so I'm, I'm really looking forward to, to enjoying like a nice, a nice glass of wine or, or a nice crisp beer. Um, yeah. and, in the next next uh, few weeks, whenever that is. <laughs> have, have we as a society reached the point where people finally are not walking up to you and just like touching your belly without asking? Like, I hope so. Yes. Okay, um, good. I think, yes. A lot of my girlfriends who, um, I have several friends who are also pregnant and they've had that experience. Um, and I think I just give out this aura. Of <laughs> don't, <laughs> don't freaking touch my belly. <laughs> That's good. Um, yeah. Yeah. Cause no one has dared. And, uh, maybe about a week or two ago, I got my first, you look like you're about to pop. Um, which I think is, probably one of the rudest comments oh yeah it's the worst <laughs> it's absolutely the worst and, and it was from this like elderly lady while i'm holding the door open for her sh so she could come through and then she like insults me i was like well that's what i get for being <laughs> polite <laughs> well look I, one of the big things i want to talk to you about is food how much of the cravings did you find to be real versus just myth uh when when you were you know over the past you know nine months yeah, I, um, the one like true craving that I had was Milo chocolate milk. Hmm. Um, and it, it was weird. Like after, like maybe deep into my first trimester, all of a sudden I was like, I really want chocolate milk, but I want specifically Milo chocolate milk, which, um, I traveled a lot because of swimming and I spent a lot of time in Australia and Asia and that's, and that's where it's really popular. Like, no, it's not even something that Americans have. It's like a malted chocolate milk drink. And so, um, thank God for Amazon because I buy it in two pound tubs <laughs> and, um, I've been having that quite a bit. And other than that, it's been, um, a lot of ice. Like I've, I, I've never liked ice water, but now I like chewing on ice cubes a lot, even though like I'm not nauseous or anything. I, there's just something about it. Um, and then a lot of fresh fruit. So thankfully, my cravings have been um, on the healthier side uh, yeah. than, than than what you typically hear. How long have you been a, I mean, would you consider yourself an air quotes foodie? Uh, yes. I think the term foodie is kind of like a gross term. But... Yes. Exactly. That's why I use the air <laughs> um, quotes because I, I don't yes. like it either. Right. Yes. But, um, but, it, but it does have, you know, uh, it, it meanings. Uh, yeah, I do. Uh, I've been into food 
you, you know, my whole life, my mom was a great cook. My grandma's a great cook. Um, and, and so I didn't have to really think about food until I was really in college. And I went to uh, UC Berkeley where there is amazing variety of really cheap, really good eats. Um, and so that's where I was exposed to uh, a lot of ethnic food that I wasn't exposed to. And that's where I really got into it. And after a year of really bad dorm food, um, I was determined to teach myself how to cook. And um, so my sophomore year, when I got my first apartment, I really just dove into into cooking and teaching myself. And from there, it grew into gardening. And um, now, you know, I'm I, I have a huge edible garden with uh, you know, chickens that lay eggs and I try and eat out of my garden as much as possible. Um, so it's, it's something that is definitely a passion of mine. Does it taste better when you've made it? Is there real, I guess I would say visceral reaction to that sense of accomplishment, or is it just something that you actually like the, the, the farming and the, and the doing of? Yes to both. Um, definitely it tastes better and it sounds so pretentious to be like, Oh, my kale smoothie with the, the kale that I grew. <laughs> um, but, but it does, it really does taste better because you pick it so fresh and then you eat it so fresh. And, um, with my chickens, there is nothing like a farm fresh egg from your backyard. That's never once been refrigerated. Um, it, it, it tastes completely different. Uh, and I understand, I totally get that not everyone has that luxury. Um, but it, it's something that I really enjoy and I've become somewhat of an egg snob because, you know, my, my, <laughs> my eggs are so much better. <laughs> they're, they're just really, really good. I give them tons of fresh vegetables and in turn, they give me some great eggs. So, um, yeah, it, 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 it gives you a better product, but I also just enjoy the process of, you know, putting my hands in the soil and starting something from seed and, and getting all these really cool varieties of vegetables and fruits that you can't buy at the store because they don't uh, transport well, or they're a really unusual uh, crop. So um, you, you get to try different things, uh, which is, which is really fun. Now you've been working on a cookbook, am I mistaken? Cook to Thrive still? Yes. Um, it's crazy how long it takes for a cookbook yeah. <laughs> to go from, uh, hey, I want to write a cookbook to it's actually in print. So um, yeah, writing a cookbook has been a goal of mine for many years. Um, and after, uh, after I stopped competing in 2016, um, I was like, okay, now I actually have time to do this. And I sold it to Clarkson Potter, who's my publisher. Um, I think it was November or December of 2016. Wow. Uh, and now it's going to come out February of 2019. So that's how long it takes. Um, I, I turned in my manuscript uh, September of 17. And then we did photography and editing and all that. And it, it's amazing how, one, how much work goes into it. And two, uh, just, just the process. Um, it, it's been really fun, but it's a, it, it was a lot of hard work. <laughs> now, as an athlete, you, you, you take process seriously. You know, the importance of a surgical methodical approach. How would you describe the first time you saw how that is the same way for food photography? Cause food photography is one of the hardest things to get right. And I'm sure that it like the is. process of doing this book and capturing the spirit of the recipes, right. Has to be 
so frustrating and maddening, correct? It, it, it is. Um, I had a great photographer and uh, food stylist. And unfortunately, they didn't do any of those like gross tricks where, you know, yeah. you spray hairspray or put <laughs> Vaseline all over the food. I, like, I've worked I've worked on uh, campaigns where they do that and you see all this wonderful food and you want it and it smells so good and you want to eat it. And they're like, Oh, you can't touch that because you know, it's been out for four hours and it's covered in hairspray and Vaseline. (laughs) All right, great. Um, But yeah, it's, there's a lot of work that goes into it. And I've, I've been into photography for years, so I totally understand like the lighting and shadows and highlights and, um, and it, it's a process. And, uh, fortunately I was there to oversee, um, two out of the five days that they shot, uh, the photography, um, because that that's a big part of cookbooks. You know, I have a whole collection myself of probably a hundred cookbooks and, uh, you, you make only so many recipes out of them, but, uh, a lot of them are great coffee table books and you just love looking at them. Uh, so the photography is hugely important. So uh, the the triathlete Gwen Jorgensen came on. She's a, a big food lover. She was talking about how she got invited to taste test uh, Shalane Flanagan, the marathon runner, um, for, you know, taste test recipes for her cookbook. What was your process for curating the recipes, for, for kind of culling it down to the best of the best? And who did you trust to keep you honest, to take a taste and be like, uh, either input on how to switch the recipe up or, or maybe let you know, like, what's, what's worthy of the book and what do you, what do you keep out? My husband, um, he was definitely, he was definitely the most honest and, uh, and gave me the most, uh, uh, the best criticism in, in like in a good way. Um, he, like he's had my cooking for years and years and years. And so he could say in a loving way, like, this isn't your best, or you can improve this or this. And, um, I would try a recipe several times before I got it right. Um, but, uh, that being said out of the 75 recipes in the cookbook, um, I would say mm, a quarter of them are family recipes. Uh, so a lot of, of, uh, Filipino recipes from my grandma and from my great grandma. So I, I just used recipe, their recipes, um, and, and shared them. Um, and in some cases I changed them up a little bit, uh, just to kind of, um, for lack of a better term, uh, and, you know, uh, make it more, uh, accessible to <laughs> Americans, yeah. uh, uh, like anglicize them a little bit. Uh, so instead of calling it ukoi, it's shrimp fritters, but I mean, it, it, it's ukoi, <laughs> but, but that way people don't have to learn Tagalog to, <laughs> to understand what I'm trying to uh, teach them how to cook. Yeah. Um, and you know, you throw some a one in there, you know, just really, just really go for it. You know? <laughs> yeah. I, I, di- I didn't go that far, but, um, but yeah, so I had a, a bunch of family recipes, um, a bunch of recipes that I have just been making for years and years and years. Um, and then recipes inspired by my travels. Um, mm. so, uh, th- those recipes, uh, gave me an opportunity to share a story from any one of the places that I visited because of swimming. Um, so one of them was uh, Poisson Cru, where my last competition was in French Polynesia. And uh, the host showed me how to make essentially what is a Polynesian pokey. Um, and so I got to share the stories 
of every time we would go somewhere new, how they would make us this Poisson crew. And then uh, one of the beach days uh, that we had, they, they showed me actually how to make it. Um, so it, it was kind of an excuse for me to share a story as, as well as a great recipe. Is there a food that you really like that you just everyone else thinks is totally weird that you like? And I say this as someone who just the other day was kind of fishing around on Twitter and saw an article that it was in defense of peanut butter and mayonnaise sandwiches, which I guess is oh, a, sta- a staple, <laughs> yeah, a staple of the South, which I think as an Ohio and Chicago lifer is disgusting. But is there is there something you just can't defend? But you're like, guys, it's just it's kind of my jam. Um. I- yeah, there's uh, something called uh, lihi moi, which um, is, I, oh gosh, I don't know if it's Chinese or Japanese. Uh, it's really popular in Hawaii. And um, I have tons of uh, family in Hawaii. So I grew up having this quite a bit, but it's uh, a dried salted plum. Um, and I think it has just tons of MSG in it and it's <laughs> like insanely salty. Um, and, uh, sometimes it's covered in candy. So you get this like super, super sweet along with this like salty bomb. Um, I've tried to give it to my husband. He's like, that's literally the grossest thing I've ever tasted. <laughs> um, and, and I get it. Like, I totally get it. It, it, it is. Uh, an acquired taste. Um, so that, that'd be one of the ones that I, I, I get it if you don't like it, but people who like it, love it. Now I, I could be mistaken. Cause like, you know, internet research is not the, uh, the most, uh, reliable, but I believe you have both judged iron chef and competed on celebrity chopped. Correct. 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 Yes. So having been on both sides as judge and, and, and contestant, which of them did you, I mean, I hate to make you choose between, but like, which did you prefer doing? Did you like going out there and competing or was it more fun to just sort of be the arbiter of, of, of who, whose work you liked better? Oh my gosh. Iron Chef was amazing. I, I loved competing on Chopped. Um, that was so fun. Um, but it was also crazy nerve wracking. Uh, the, <laughs> the night, the night before I had this dream that, me and the other contestants were in the first round cooking and then the judges just stopped it. They're like, you guys don't even know what you're doing. Like this is, (laughs) this is a total waste of time. Uh, and like, I, I, like I had, you know, essentially a nightmare about it because I know I'm a great cook. Uh, but when you're given a 20 minute or a 30 minute, uh, deadline, uh, you know, it's, it's something very different. I'm, I'm used to having a glass of wine and cooking at my own pace. (laughs) Um, but uh, yeah, so I I loved Chopped in the sense that it's a great exercise in making a decision and and sticking with it um, because you, you you start to go down this path and there's no turning back because you have no time. So it's a it's a great exercise. Um, but uh, I loved Iron Chef. Um, I got to be a judge on the Super Chef battle. So it was uh, chefs Mario Batali and Emeril Lagasse. They were paired up against um, the executive chef of the White House at the time, Christetta Comerford. Uh, she was the chef for the Obamas and um, Bobby Flay. So it was the best of the best. And then on top of it, the secret ingredient was the White House garden. So it was a really special episode. Um, so I, I felt so blessed to be a part of it. 
and the food was so, so good. Um, like it was incredible what these chefs were able to come up with in less than an hour's time. Um, and, and it was as someone who loves the entire process of cooking and eating, um, it was remarkable to watch these really accomplished chefs like in, in the zone and get it, get to see how they made everything from start to finish. Uh, so that was, that was a really cool experience. Like when you're sitting down to, you know, give your thoughts on the, uh, Batali Emerald collaboration, did you get self-conscious? Like if, if, if I was, if you hop in the pool and I'm like, Hey, I watched, uh, I watched Beijing. Let me give you some tips, you know? And you're like, bro, uh, yes. no way. <laughs> yes, exactly. You feel like a fraud. You're like, I know what I'm talking about. Um, yeah, no, it, it was definitely take what, you know, no pun intended, take this with a grain of salt. This, this wasn't, this dish might, might not has, have been as good as this dish, but all that being said, it's all amazing. <laughs> like it was all amazing. <laughs> And, and uh, looking back on that, the whole point of that uh, episode was to highlight the uh, White House garden. And if the only criticism I would have about uh, Chef Vitali and Lagasse were they they used all the ingredients from the garden, but they also used a lot of animal protein and fats. And um, it wasn't as vegetable centric, I think, as uh, it was intended to be, um, but it was delicious. So you know, you know that the headlines are going to be, you know, that you took shots at uh, at Emerald. <laughs> you know that that's what, that's what we can we, we'll look for that on Twitter uh, right after this airs. Um, yeah, perfect. No. So look, you've talked a lot about growing food. Your vineyard. W- yes. When did you When did you get into this? And and what beyond just the desire to you know have that glass of wine with, with, with cooking. What, what gets you into this? Because it is a notoriously difficult thing to do. Um, it demands time and patience and true sort of scientific understanding of the fundamentals of how to, how to produce wine. So why, why go into this realm? Because I can't think of anything potentially more mentally taxing when you're like, Hey, I'm just leaving my career as an Olympic champion, internationally recognized swimmer. Let me get into this to kick my feet up and relax a little bit. Yeah. Um, it's funny. I've, I've been into wine, uh, you know, since I was able to drink, um, I, I grew up just outside of Napa Valley and my parents were into wine. Um, you know, this was in the eighties and nineties, like after church, they would, you know, stop by a, a vineyard and, and have a tasting with their kids. <laughs> um, so, uh, that, that was something that I remember doing as a kid. And, um, as I got older, I was like, Oh, you know, once I got into food naturally, when I was able to drink wine pairing, uh, kind of followed along with that. And, uh, one of my good friends, uh, Shana Harding, she's my business partner at Gadarian Wines. So it's the two of us. Um, and she's a winemaker. Um, so she moved out from uh, to California, from Florida, ended up uh, having a career change and deciding she wanted to go into the wine business. And I was always so, I, I, I admired how she redid her education um, and and, re- and got her degrees in viticulture and enology, all while working her way up uh, very quickly through the the ranks of the wine industry, from 
you know, cellar rat to associate winemaker um, at Honeycut Wines. And um, I think one day when my husband and I were tasting wine with her husband, I probably, I mentioned, you know, I would love to be in this business one day, you know, one of those pipe dreams. And last year, early last year, she texted me um, out of the blue and she's like, Hey, I want to start a wine label and you be my partner. And I texted back within minutes and I was like, yes. And you can't take this back. If you didn't mean to text this Natalie, <laughs> if you meant to text another Natalie in your contacts, you can't take it back. Right. Um, and, uh, when we were, we hosted a tasting recently and someone was asking her, like, why did you guys decide to, to, uh, you know, pair up together? Why did you decide to be, uh, uh, business partners? And, and one thing that Shana said was, you know, I, I was willing to put in a lot of hard work without getting paid for the first few years, which is true. Um, you know, there's a lot of sweat equity that goes into this business and, um, it, it, we're building something together and it's so exciting. Um, so the 2017 vintage was our first, our first year. Um, so we did about 70 cases of Chenin Blanc, um, which we just sold out of about a week or two ago. Uh, we had uh, 140 or 130 cases of Pinot Noir, um, which we just released a few weeks ago. Um, and that's selling really well. Um, and we're already working on the, the 2018s. Uh, so we have a Chenin Blanc, a Rosé of Pinot Noir, and a Pinot Noir. Um, and it's been so, so fun for me to learn so much about the winemaking process. Um, obviously, I don't have uh, the education behind me. Like I took a lot of plant biology and, and uh, classes like that at, at Cal when I was there, but I never took viticulture or enology. So um, I signed up for a couple online classes at UC Davis just to get a, a basic uh, winemaking, you know, you know, winemaking 101 type thing. Um, but I just do whatever Shana tells me to do. <laughs> All right. um, and but it it really appeals to a lot of different sides of my brain. Um, I've always been someone who's really into science, and so the the chemistry and the science of it is really cool. I love watching um, you know something go from a grape to wine. Like I love I love kind of the farm to table thing of the garden, and you apply that to the vineyard. It's the same thing. Uh, so I loved. Uh, going into the vineyard and, and seeing, you know, when brazen starts. So that means when um, the ripening starts all the way when you're testing the bricks. So you, the sugar is going up and up and up. And then you learn. And then when the bricks are at a certain level, that's when you harvest. And then that's when you process the wine and then make the wine. Um, so I love that that process and the physical labor behind it. And then on top of it, you get a great product. Um, so it, it, it's been really, really fun. And um, you know, I'm learning a lot about the business side, um, you know, working the social, uh, media aspect of it and calling customers or customers calling me. Um, <laughs> I've, I've had to, I've had to work on, uh, my answering <laughs> technique because I'm so used to getting these robocalls that I, I answer so gruffly if it's the number I don't recognize. And now that it's, <laughs> it's a business <laughs> call and I have to you know, be like, hi, this is Darian wants you, you, this is Natalie, instead of being like, hello. <laughs> yeah. Or like, hey, go. 
Um, yeah, exactly. What, you mentioned the labor of it. And when you look at your Instagram, like you're out there doing the work. I mean, you're, you're shoveling, you're stomping grapes. So, Yeah, so the, a lot of things have been mechanized. Uh, a, a lot ha- have been mechanized. Um, but we are so small that we're able to still do a lot of things by hand. So for instance, um, instead of uh, machine harvesting, we you know pay a crew to hand harvest. And that's just a lot easier on the vines. Uh, you get a much better pick than you would if a giant machine just shakes the vines, which a lot of a lot of big places they do that because it's cost effective. Um, so we we are still very, very small. So uh, one of like a great example uh, are the punch downs. So when you're making red wine, um, when you're fermenting, so after you pick the grapes, and they've been destemmed. Uh, you have the what's called the must and the juice. So basically, the berries, the the grape berries and the juice, all ferment in these giant bins. Um, they're about six foot by six foot by six foot or so, maybe five foot. Um, but a lot of places that are really big will have um, while they're fermenting. You have along the top. Um, there's what's called the cap. And so you ferment for about three weeks is what we've, we've typically been doing. Um, and so you have to stir it about every three times a day um, at minimum. And a lot of places who are really big, they do that with machine. We actually do that by hand. Um, and yeah. it's so cool. Uh, I love it. I, I compare it to swimming. Um, so you go in there and you sanitize your hands all the way up to your shoulders and you kind of lean over these big old bins and it's like you're swimming through, through the wine, uh, with your arms and you're stirring it up. Um, and so it's really, really cool. Uh, and because we're so small, we're able to still do that by hand. Um, but if we were making a thousand cases or 2000 cases, we would have to probably go to machine, um, but the actual press, um, we're not we're not hand we're not stomping the grapes with our feet. <laughs> we're 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 shoveling uh, in, into into the bins, and then they they go into a bladder press, and and this uh, this uh, machine presses it for us. <laughs> Plus, you know, grape stomping is dangerous. Have you ever seen that viral video of the poor oh, news it's hilarious. anchor? <laughs> yes, I know that. <laughs> I, I I never got word if she was actually hurt, but that makes me crack up every single time. It's my wife's kryptonite. Like it, 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 we could be in the worst <laughs> fight ever, and I could just I'd be like, you know, just tell my five year old like, find a way to boot that up, go. Um, <laughs> so what what's your ambition with the with the vineyard? Is it something that you want to keep relatively, um, you know, small, intimate? Is it something you're trying to aggressively grow and and, and market? Like wh- where do you see yourself go- taking it? Yeah, that's something that my uh, partner and I, we, we needed to decide, but we, our goal eventually is to actually own our own vines because currently we have uh, leases on our vines. So the way that that works is you meet with a vineyard manager or the vineyard owner and you sign a lease where, you know, it's kind of like an apartment, you know, it could be yeah. one year, it could be five years. Um, and you kind of oversee the growing period. So you could tell them to, um, you know, thin the crop or, you know, water more or water less, you know, you kind of give them directives 
but you don't own those grapes until they're actually harvested. So you kind of oversee it all until they're picked and then, then it's yours. Um, so eventually we would love to have our own vineyard. And so that requires, um, investors and, and all that. So that, that's, you know, probably the five, 10 year plan on, on right. this. Um, but yeah, we, we definitely want to grow. Um, we, we were really excited at the beginning of, of last year, um, an importer from China actually bought 30 or 40 cases before we were done, uh, with malolactic fermentation, which was amazing. Uh, so I think as we speak, um, the slow boat to China has about 30 or 40 of, of our 140 total cases, um, going over there. So we we're in the international market, which is really exciting. Um, (laughs) are you a full on wine snob now? Uh, I, I don't think I would call myself a wine snob. I, I like, I like wine and I like good wine. Um, all that being said, there are some great wines that are $15 or $20, um, that, that are made very well and taste good. Um, and then there are great, you know, Cabernets that are $200 and above. Um, I, I like it all. <laughs> I just, <laughs> I, I, I like, I like, um, I, I like good wine and you could find that at any price point. Um, yeah. but, uh, there, there's definitely a difference between two buckshock and, and, uh, you know, our product. <laughs> um, <laughs> you're not, you're you not trying to replicate, you're not trying to replicate the Boone's farm, uh, recipe then. Yeah, yeah, definitely not. Definitely not. <laughs> so fi- finally, like you mentioned off the top, photography, that, that's been a passion of yours as well. Mm-hmm. So what types of photography really stirs your passion? Yeah, uh, so when I was a kid, I was really into photography. So then when I went to Cal, I my freshman year was 2000. So that was really when digital photography started, but it wasn't affordable for anybody. So I was still doing film and I did black and white um, film then where I developed my own and I took some classes at Cal, uh, which was really cool because if you took any classes um, in the photography lab, you got full use of the lab. Um, So I was able to, to really hone in on how to develop and, and, and all that. And then maybe in 2002, 2003, uh, digital really became much more affordable. So I stopped doing that. Um, but I, I, I like a little bit of everything. I love candids of people. Um, one of my best friends, I actually shot uh, her wedding, uh, which was uh, a lot of pressure. Yeah, <laughs> that is pressure. I, 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 um, I nearly had a heart attack when I thought I deleted an entire card. Um, oh, yeah, I, it was it was a really terrifying five seconds before I realized I had not done that. Um, but uh, I love candids of, of people and uh, underwater uh, photography. Um, I uh, have a few housings that I really enjoy and in and, and nature. And I've gone on two expeditions in Mexico with uh, great white sharks and have a ton of really good photography from that have a lot of really cool um, photos from free diving and, you know, Hawaii or Australia or wherever. Um, yeah. I, like I love, I love just being out in nature and, and having, having a camera and being able to capture it. I did see those great white photos that you've got on your Instagram. So you took those and I guess I would, yeah. I would say how scary is it to 
be because my wife and I went to South Africa a couple years ago, and you know we we mm-hmm. saw all the, you know, we, I, I remember walking by this uh, great white you know shark cage experience thing, and it and it said like you know fifty percent off or something for the day, and I, my wife said we should do this, and I'm like I'm not going to the discount great white shark cagers, <laughs> okay? We're gonna pay top dollar. So how how scared were you? Because I didn't do it, I, I just refused. How scary is it to be down there, and how do you how do you try to focus on you know, getting a good shot when you're also just very cognizant of being in another predator's element. It, you know, I'm not saying this to be brave or to sound cool. It's really not that scary. Um, it, and, and, and I, and I'm someone who surfs and I enjoy surfing. I get freaked out when I'm surfing, um, about sharks, um, uh, because you're much more, you're much more at risk in that situation than you are diving with them. Um, you know, they're, they're ambush predators. And so, if you're in a cage um, or if you're standing on a platform, even out of the cage, uh, you're uh, safe isn't the right word, but you're safer because typically they, they attack from below you. Um, and when you're in the water, just diving with them and they're not agitated, especially in a place like uh, Guadalupe Island, Mexico, where I dove, the visibility is incredible. And um, great white sharks have really, really, uh, they have great vision, which a lot of people, they don't, they can't even imagine that. Um, and side note, they have the most beautiful blue eyes. You, you think, <laughs> you think you, that they, they have these like dark, soulless eyes that you see um, in all, you know, shark week. Um, but actually when they swim up to you, they're very curious and they have the most beautiful blue eyes, but um, they're chill. Uh, they, they just, they kind of, they kind of come up and they, they check you out and you can see their eyeball, like looking around and scanning you. And, um, it's, it's not scary really at all. Um, but when you have the juvenile ones, so like the teenage ones, they don't, they, they're a lot, they're a lot scarier. They're kind of like teenage boys. Um, they're just scarier because they haven't learned to um, manage their energy. And so they dart around and they're, they're squirrely, you know, you, you don't trust those ones as much, but the big old ones, they conserve their energy and, uh, they, they know that you're not a good meal. (laughs) Yeah. Well, plus you, you have the skills to maybe elude them for a lot longer than someone like myself would, if there was a problem. So no, I I would be, I would be just as much food as you would be. (laughs) I'm I'm a great (laughs) swimmer, but uh, gray white sharks or any sharks for that matter, uh, put us all to shame. Oh, come <laughs> on. I mean, Phelps almost beat that CGI one, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That I, oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah, no, no comment, right? I'm not starting any swim beefs. <laughs> well, Hey, look, yeah. you've been so generous with your time. I, I want to, uh, thank you so much for coming on. So the cookbook comes out early next year, correct? Correct. So the cookbook should be out February or March of 2019. And uh, the wine is out, and um, it's just GadarianWines.com. Yeah. And, you know, I, I was Googling it, and has anyone pointed out that there's a Star Wars alien, like, that's, like, the race of Galdarians? You don't get any calls. No. From, you don't get any calls from weirdo Star Wars nerds like me that are just like, I want to order this, but can I get, like, Chewbacca on the on the label? <laughs> Not yet, but maybe. Um, yeah, we, we, we do have our jackalope mascot, which is kind of a fun ma- mascot. And um, yeah, when when we were coming up with names, 
I um, found Gadarian, which is old English for to gather or to bring mm. together. And uh, we thought it was just the perfect name because, you know, wine hopefully brings people together <laughs> um, and you enjoy a great meal around it. So we thought it was perfect. Or, you know, when you have a new baby, sometimes wine just you, you go sneak off into a broom closet for like 20 <laughs> seconds and drink as much of it as you can. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Just one big jump shot. One big you jump shot. On, or you might be off. Cash money. So try to maintain and refrain from the strength. And don't get lost in the salt. Don't get caught up in it. Life's just one big jump shot. One you big either jump on, shot. Or you might be off. So try to maintain and refrain from the strength. And don't get lost in the salt. And we are back. In the sports world, athletes, coaches, media, they do interesting things. And instead of celebrating these things, we tell them that they are just locker room distractions. Get back to watching game films. Stop being interesting. Stop uh, thinking for yourself. That's ridiculous. Life is just work and the things that distract us from work. So every week on this show, I champion locker room distractions by telling you what is distracting me. And this week, look, I was in Oakland for work. I travel like virtually every week for work now. It's kind of exhausting, but you know, it, it is what it is. It pays the bills. And I was in Oakland, all right? And I was trying, you know, an event that ended at five o'clock. I was like, are there any flights back to Chicago? Nothing available outside of the red eye. Now, I don't sleep on planes. I just physically cannot sleep on planes for more than 20 minutes. Uh, it's just never been something I can do. So, red eyes are just basically like giving up an extra day. <laughs> all right. So, I said, all right, I'm just going to stay in Oakland. I'll take a morning flight back. So, I get online, and what do I see? The Dubs are playing. That's right. The Warriors in town playing the Suns. And I go, man, these StubHub tickets, it's pretty cheap. No one wants to see the Suns get blown out. I'm going to this game. I'm going to go see the team. I want to see them in person, see Durant, see Curry, all this other stuff. Number one, let me tell you this. I was there the game before Steph went insane for 51 points. So that was super frustrating. But number two, and this is really my distraction for the week. I was there on replica uh, ring night, <laughs> replica championship ring night. So they hand you this like much heavier than expected. I'm holding it right now. Replica of uh, the, the, the new championship ring. And, you know, people are taking photos with it, you know, that kind of thing. Got me thinking, within the team hierarchy, who gets to wear a championship ring. I work with a lot of people who have, as we say on this show, uh, log time with professional sports teams. And, and several of them have won championships. And, you know, a few rock out their bling um, consistently. Uh, and then you see people like, you know, Mike Lombardi, who I think was a scout for the Patriots. And then I, I see him taping his podcast and he's, and, he's, and he's wearing his ring. And then, you know, obviously like, athletes that you run into coaches i mean i remember growing up you know meeting weeb eubank and looking at his super bowl ring and uh, or bumping into athletes here and there and some guys wear it some don't so here's my question who where do we draw the line with who gets to wear the championship ring i guess in my head it goes like this if you were on the field or the court in a competitive sense it's a no-brainer. You can do whatever you want. So if you were a player on the team, even if you were a bench player, if you're Adam Morrison and you got those Kobe rings, sure. You know, you, you practiced. You, you, you served some sort of functional purpose. Even if you were just the Rudy of your team, like firing up the other dudes, that's still serving a functional purpose. I think 
anyone who can deem themselves sort of a coach or the 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 training staff who played a role. So if you like, if you're like the one of the trainers and you're getting the team prepared, uh, if you're a coach, if you're a scout, if you're in the business of assembling the team or finding the talent, I'm cool with that. You know, they found the wide receiver or the whatever. Knock yourself out, man. Okay. Here's where it gets a little tricky. If you're the owner, sure. If you're like the general manager or like part of the operations team that like pieced the group together, I'm cool. I'm cool with that. Then it gets even murkier. For me. If you ran a department, so if you ran marketing, you ran PR, probably. It's I mean it's fish. I've been in some elevators with people just wearing like 2006 Miami Heat championship rings in my building and being like. You don't look like you were running stuff. Uh, were you like the number three guy? <laughs> and it's these people that this is where you like go on on eBay and you find championship rings for sale. And if it doesn't say a player's name or have somebody's name, you're like, oh, you were like the third person in the PR team, and you're trying to sell this for fifteen grand. <laughs> good luck. So I don't know. Look, there's no rule of thumb. If you got it, flaunt it. I think it's good. I'm all for it. But um, just know, you know, if you were uh, if your if your main job was uh, uh, you know, selling seat licenses. <laughs> I'm not sure I'd wear it every day. Maybe just bust it out for big events or something. I don't know. Uh, but let me know. Email me. Give me some uh, Twitter feedback. Hit me on the Instagrams. Just let me know what. Who do you think gets to wear the ring? Uh, and look, if you if you go to the stadium and you just get one of these replica rings, you need to put that on the shelf or give it. Do what I did. Give it to your five year old and say, "Here, honey, play with this." <laughs> All right. Moving on. Let's talk about next week's show because it is one of my all-time favorite guests, Becky Sauerbrunn. That's right. One of the stars of what I consider to be America's team, the U.S. women's national soccer team. They are requalified for the World Cup next year. We are pumped. We are ready to go. Becky has been playing out of her mind. I think she's top three in the world, uh, certainly the best defensive player in the world, in my opinion. And she's come on the show before. We've broken down her love of sci-fi, fantasy, and we talked back then about how much she loves the book Ready Player One. Well, movie came out this summer. She and I were trading notes on Twitter, and I'm like, we got to have you back on when things clear up. She's like, all right, here we go. So let me, let me give you a taste of Becky comparing book to movie. So what, what do you think the movie got right? What do you think the movie got wrong? Let's start with, let's start with right. Okay, so... What I think the film did right is, compared to the book, I thought the film gave female characters more of a positive impact on the Oasis and the world itself. Like, I did read where um, people thought that Artemis in the book was kind of a like gift at the end of the movie to Wade Watts for like doing everything that he did. Um, and I kind of like looking back, I'm like, oh, that's really, that's really interesting because she is this like pixie-like video gamer's dream mm-hmm. that we don't really see until the very end. And so I thought that in the film, having her have this whole kind of side story where she's like anti-IOI and, you know, she's leading the resistance against this organization, um, it was far from the novel, but I did, I appreciated it. 
Yeah, I, uh, my only complaint about Artemis is just when are filmmakers going to realize that taking a beautiful actress and smearing like a little bit of makeup over one side of her face does not make her <laughs> this like hideous person who has to be so self-conscious with everything because it, it reminded me of She's All That, you know, from the 90s where oh, it's just a beautiful totally. woman wearing glasses and everyone's like, oh, she's so hideous. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's also kind of interesting when you compare that to... Wade Watts in the book and Wade Watts in the film. Because, like, in the book, I appreciated that Wade Watts, he's overweight, he acknowledges he's overweight, he starts, like, doesn't he restrict himself from entering the Oasis until he's completed this exercise program? Yep, yep. And so you have a man, a, a male character, like, finding confidence physically, but you're not showing this female character finding confidence physically. You're actually doing quite the opposite. Excited for that episode. Tune in next week for that. And... Let me end with some shout-outs. Shout-out Natalie Coughlin. Shout-out the new baby. Shout-out uh, her family. Congratulations so much. And check out, look for her cookbook coming out next year. Uh, follow her on Twitter, Instagram for uh, for updates. And hit me up on Twitter. Hit me up on email, justnotsports at gmail.com. And we will see you next week. In the immortal words of rapper extraordinaire Shaquille O'Neal, booty, rappers, stay booty. <laughs>